used to think success was something you had to be superhuman to achieve. That the successful were different from the rest of us. That you had to be born better than a normal human to achieve anything. But the successful are more similar to you and me than we thought. They're just real people. So I go talk with them. I'm Dakota O'Neill, and this is Real with O'Neill. With uh, D.R. Schreiber. He is a professional magician who has been performing for 25 years with his current act going back about 15. He has received awards in the field of magic for excellence in stage magic and personal advancement in magic. He has held several positions in several esteemed magical societies. Uh, And yeah, he's here today to tell us exactly how he got started in this amazing field. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate that. Uh, so, yeah, if you could just uh, start uh, as early as you're comfortable, you know, tell us about your childhood or tell us about how you got started in magic or just what inspired you to go down this this path that you're on. Absolutely. I, I began as, as many magicians uh, at a very early age, learning uh, some very basic rudimentary tricks. I, I was fortunate because my mother was a school teacher and used magic in her uh, classes as kind of a reward for the kids. So she taught me some early magic and um, met a number of magicians and that, you know, I've seen some, obviously some birthday party type magicians as a kid, but uh, really got back interested in it really back um, post-college after I got out of the college. And um, one of the more influential things that I, I spent time doing is when I was in college, I worked for many years at Disneyland as a ride operator there, the Disneyland in Southern California as a jungle cruise operator um, and Pirates of the Caribbean, Haunted Mansion, all of those types of rides there. And uh, that was very influential because Disney is very good at creating illusion. And that's one of the things that we did very, very well in the park. And I think that uh, helped as a cast member to really influence how I think of my magic nowadays. One of the things that we're taught at Disney is to think of all of the senses. You want to really try to immerse your audience into the experience, which if anyone's ever been to Disneyland, they kind of know they, they do that very, very well. So in the same way, um, in my magic act now today, that's one of the things that I, I take into consideration. But uh, after college, I really, um, I got back into magic, started doing a lot of you know performances and teaching. Uh, I, I do teach you know magicians, uh, new magicians, that kind of stuff. But I didn't really have a direction of what I wanted to do. Uh, there was a lot of magic out there, a lot of magicians out there. And I wanted to do something unique because I really love magic history. I really like history in general and um, hadn't really seen a lot of historical magicians. There's a few out there, but not a lot. And I just didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I, I thought early on I'd want to do a kind of a, Harry Houdini themed time period act, which is, you know, 1920s ish. But um, I just didn't, I never really got a hook on that. Never really figured out exactly what to do. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until uh, a few years later that I happened to read a book talking about some early, uh, early 19th century, late 18th century magicians. And um, it happened to be talking about a magician wearing a top hat and one of the first magicians to perform in a top hat. And I had never, it was actually a children's book. It was a kid's book that I read to my, my son when he was a baby called Whose Hat Is This? And it was, I mean, again, a little picture book uh, talking about this magician. 
And again, I like magic history, and I thought I knew a lot about magic history, and I'd never heard of this guy, um, Compte, and it's what the, the book had credited him as being one of the first magicians to wear a top hat. And um, again, I hadn't heard of this name. I knew all of the other magicians in the much more modern time, but I hadn't heard of the Compte. So I started doing more research into it, uh, started reading a lot more books and doing a lot more investigation and found out that there's a lot of magic history that hasn't really been told by other magicians. And it really dates from the 18th and 19th century. So that's where I kind of hyper-focused on this. And um, I also have some friends who are enthusiasts in a combination of steampunk performance era kind of things, and also some Regency reenactors, people who like to do the Regency era. And as I told them this, they both said, you need to do a magic act for us based on this time period. And so it was kind of a custom order <laughs> that they ordered me to put this together. And um, so within six months, I had created this character and act. I'm fortunate because my wife is uh, a writer. And so she wrote the script for me. And I've done all the research into some of these early performers. And now I've created a, basically what a, we call a Regency era magic act, which if you know the Regency, that runs from about 1790s to approximately about 1820s, 1830s time period right in that area, which is the area, the era nowadays of Jane Austen and um, the fictional show Bridgerton uh, and Netflix, both of those set right in that Regency time period. So that's what I, that's basically what I do as my time period of, of magic. That's kind of where I, I focus on. And I, I have not seen many other magicians who do this era. There's very, very few. Um, I, I know of at least one one other person. So, um, and, and he and I have talked many a time. We're, we're friends. So it's funny. He, he takes a very different approach than I do on, on the magic, but, um, that's kind of what I've created is this little niche, I guess you'd say for the Regency era magic. And I end up performing obviously in costume, uh, for a lot of also other people who are in costume. So I'm often performing in other parlor houses or, you know, Victorian houses. Not a lot of people in America have Regency era houses. That's a little bit, a little bit old. But uh, a lot of people who have Victorian's uh, era houses will have me come in and perform. But, of course, I also perform conferences, cosplay events, mm -hmm. um, and then private parties as well. Just people who want something that's kind of a classy, old-fashioned style magic. Um, I get called into. And corporate gigs. Sometimes a corporate gig will want something that's a little bit less than a Vegas-looking styled magician. They want something that's a little more classy, usually for executives, something like that. Because, um, of course... I'm performing in traditional looking 1812 attire. And um, that's kind of what they're looking for in their imaging. So that's where I, I have uh, that is a quick version of my story. That's the five minute version. How's that? That's good. It's uh, I mean, it's fascinating. Um, but but what would you say? You said you wanted to be like Harry Houdini when you first started out. Was he one of your biggest influences or is it like a particular magician you watched growing up or like as a child or like, well, what was it that initially you saw and you were like, oh, this is what I want to do? You know, that's funny. Um, I, actually, I know exactly who it was. I was in third grade. <laughs> uh, so that would be like quite nine years old. His name is Bob Eaton and he is uh, a local magician from where I, my hometown and um, Bob was performing at one of those Cub Scouts blue and gold banquets doing just basic silly magic. But he was getting the audience to laugh and play along with him and having a great time. And then um, I went away to college, left for many years, uh, didn't actually 
don't really remember Bob or anything. I didn't actually remember his name. But when I finally moved back to Portland, Oregon, where I am now based, I moved away for college and for high school and uh, came back here and, and joined the local magic club. I stumbled. Well, actually, I didn't stumble. My parents found this old photo from when I was nine, when I saw the magician and got a picture of me on stage because he had called me up, of course, and um, I had the picture of him and written on the back of the photo was his name, Bob Eaton. So I was able to figure it out. And one of our vice presidents of the Magic Club that I joined was Bob Eaton, the same magician that I'd seen 25 years before. Um, and Bob was still part of the Magic Club. And of course, you know, I joked about it, showed him the picture. And of course, I was a little child at the time and he was not. And he still isn't. He's a much older gentleman now, but still performing, uh, still out there doing his same act and doing, you know, entertaining kids all over. Um, but it was great to see that Bob was the first in-person live magician that I'd ever seen. And then I got to go back and meet him again. Um, it was just very, very great. And of course, I'm glad that my mom kept the picture and wrote down the name of the magic man that I saw uh, at the time. But um, yeah, so that would be like my, I don't know if I call him my influence, but it, he certainly sparked my creativity and my interest on that. And then I just started watching, you know, a lot of the, the specials, you know, the David Copperfield special. That was the big thing. The Lance Burton specials that were on later on. And um, I think there was a blinking out another another early magician, but a lot of those TV specials. But those are usually pretty rare. You wouldn't see those very often because, you know, you get like once a year, there'd be a David Copperfield or something. But those were fun to watch and, and enjoyable. But none of them were the style that I wanted to do. You know, they weren't what I wanted to be or emulate but they certainly were good magicians to watch. Harry Houdini was really just one of the first, you know, he's the big name and that's what everybody knows is the Houdini name. So I think that's really where, what sparked my interest is I wanted to be, I didn't want to be like Harry Houdini. I did not in any way want to do what he did, but I liked the old fashioned style um, of the old fashioned conjuring. Harry Houdini was much more of, you know, the stunts that he pulled and much more of a showman, a very different style of, of performance. Um, great in his own way, but he was really the name that everybody knew as, you know, magic. And yeah, because almost of, everything he did was like a life or death type of thing. Very much so. That he kind of invented that genre of, of escape. You know, either you're gonna either you're gonna succeed or you're gonna die. That's kind of his his little his little thing. Although there's some great stories as you do more research into Houdini, which I've done lots. Is um, Houdini, actually, everything he did was fairly safe. His wife, Bess, was very, very uh, big on Harry only performing tricks that kept him safe. So anything, even though it looked death-defying on film or, you know, we read about it in the paper, it looked death-defying, Harry always had a back backup. He always had a backup plan. And um, the, one of the big famous tricks in that era was a, one called the bullet catch, in which a magician had a, a gun fired at them, and they were then to catch the bullet. And a lot of Harry's peers were performing that trick, and he, he kind of wanted to do it to keep up with everybody else, but Bess refused to let him do it because that trick is inherently dangerous because it does involve live weapons and you know ammunition and so forth. And in history, uh, 13 magicians have died performing that trick, uh, the bullet catch. So Beth, Beth Houdini said, Harry, you will not do that trick. It is too dangerous. Mm. And so Harry, Harry never produced the, the, the bullet catch on stage. So um, that was, even though he was able to create the illusion that he was very death-defying, he actually wasn't. He was actually very safe and did everything very safe. And 
uh, if you do research, it actually explains you how he did these backups, which is also what a lot of magicians don't do nowadays. There's been a few cases where there's been magicians who do stunts who really do hurt themselves or kill themselves because they didn't prepare the way that Houdini does, that Houdini did with a backup and a safety and ways to get out of things. Um, and so those, unfortunately, that still happens today. I know just uh, within the last 10 years, there was a magician who was killed um, by doing the buried alive trick that Harry Houdini had done. And um, they did it wrong and the coffin crap crashed on them and they they died under the, the weight of the, the the dirt i hate to get morbid i just got really dark sorry <laughs> about that uh, <laughs> went into the dark area there of magic no it's okay i mean the, the show is called real with o'neill that's what we're here for we just got very dark and real about the, the death of, of magicians <laughs> all right I'll, I'll go out of that that place but yeah those those are the types of people who kind of you know spark my magic interest but then I was also influenced um, on a lot of the history stuff. So my parents, when I was young, took me to Colonial Williamsburg and the Plymouth Plantation, which I think have changed their name. And a lot of these, you know, living history museums that are all around the country and in the world where I could see reenactors, you know, places like Renaissance fairs, dressed up in costume, being in that period. And I really loved that idea. I liked that concept of being that way. And uh, that's one of the things that I really kind of wanted to emulate in my performance. And so when I came up with the idea, when I was in encouraged to do the idea of doing, uh, you know, Regency 18th century magic, that played off perfect, where I could play the character of being a period magician from the 18th century, early 19th century, and really be that conjurer to, to uh, for the audiences, you know, to entertain the audiences and to give them back, bring them back to what it was like you know, centuries ago and what audiences, when they first saw magicians inside, um, you know, inside the, inside the buildings, you know, basically before that magicians were performing outside. So 18th century is when they kind of came indoors. I mean, yes. Yeah, uh, it's always fascinating to me how pe like almost professions seem to come in and out of style because there for a while street performers and musicians and, and people with creative unique abilities were held in like honestly really high regard by people in high positions in the world like leadership mm -hmm. businessmen and other such things they used to pay almost crazy amounts to have people come and just entertain them and then not even 40 50 years later 100 years later suddenly it's right back to the way it used to be where it's just oh Unless you expect to make $20 a day performing on a street corner, you shouldn't even bother getting into this skill or this it's talent. Yes, absolutely. So how, how was it that you managed to establish yourself, especially as someone who's not even doing the modern version <laughs> of, of the entertainment that you do? How did you manage to? I've been able to um, carve out a niche that doesn't exist. And... Um, one of the, the, the bigger challenges I think that magicians have to, people are very successful in the local magic community performing for kids, you know, for birthday parties, for libraries, for schools. And they're kind of doing a standard magic um, that is, you know, basically, you know, kid party magic. And um, as an adult doing an adult magic show, because again, I, I perform primarily for adults. I, I my, my, act and i'm not in character in any way right now in the interview i'm kind of being myself i'm being danny my normal character is professor dr schreiber and he would be much more of a, a, a elaborate victorian regency style performer and my whole 
act is kind of done in an old English style, which uh, kids don't necessarily even understand. They kind of kind of goes over their heads a lot, but they get the magic, but it's not really for them. Um, and as I, I know, I, we've talked before we started recording, a lot of my tricks involve knives and guns and fire and things that kids that are, you know, nine years old should not be playing with, let alone watching adults play with. <laughs> so it's not really a kid show in that way. So that was hard for me to have to be able to convince people that magic is for adults again. And, um, you know, back to the 18th century, back in the Regency, it would have been adults watching the magic show. It would not have been kids. There would not be kids in that building because we would have been performing at the castles and the manor houses and the country houses of all of the royals and the elites of Europe. It would not have been, you know, little Timmy coming down to watch the magic man because, you know, the, the parents would have paid tens of thousands of dollars to have this magician there to entertain the Lord and the lady, not to entertain the kids. Um, that's what the nannies did. Mm -hmm. So that was a very different uh, thing, a thought process for, for people. And it often it actually ends up being until I get an adult to watch what I do and watch my show, they realize, oh, this is not the same as a kid magician. I get it. Okay, you're not doing balloon animals. You don't do that. And it's a little bit of a different take. So it, it does, there definitely is some re-education of our modern audiences to take magic back to our ability. And there's, there's a number of magicians around the country who are doing that very, very well and bringing magic back to being more of the elite um, entertainment that it was originally back in the Regency era and before. But um, that has been definitely a struggle and that's been a hard thing to do because inevitably when I meet someone on the street, meet someone for the first time, tell them I'm a magician, the first thing they said is, oh, my five-year-old would love you, hmm. which is a very nice compliment. And I appreciate that. And I probably would like their five-year-old, but uh, that's not what I do. I don't perform for kids. So I will often get inquiries from people who ask, oh, can I, you know, can you do a you know, birthday party for my five-year-old? And most of the time I will say no. And I turn them away. And I know a lot of magicians in the area. And if, depending on where they're located, I will direct them to a magician who can do a five-year-old birthday party uh, because there are magicians who do a great job at that. And, you know, the way I like to equate it is like with music, you know, if I'm a, a jazz music, musician and somebody wants a rock and roll concert, I, I don't, they don't want me. Right. You, know, you want a rock, you know, you want a reggae band. You don't want to hire a jazz band to perform. The same thing goes with us is if you want an adult magician, you're going to want me. But if you want a teen magician, there's somebody else who fits your need. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. They think, the common people think that just a magician is a magician is a magician, that we're all the same. Uh, I've often had, you know, bookings when I've talked to uh, corporate gigs and said, you know, would you like a magician? They said, oh, we had a magician, you know, a number of years ago. Magicians don't work for us. We don't do magicians. Which, again, is a very strong stereotype that you've just basically put, you know, thousands and thousands of performers into one category of magician. Right. And there are different magicians out there, just like there are, you know, different singers. And it'd be like saying we had a band once and we don't do bands now. So uh, same thing. There's very different. And that certainly takes some more convincing to people. And I think there's been, <laughs> it's been more receptive. The other thing that's actually worked for me to help it make it work, you know, successfully is that I've begun to go after different niches and, uh, you know, performing for these 
cosplay groups, history groups. They absolutely love performing for people who are history enthusiasts because they can appreciate the history of my character. They can appreciate the history of my art. They can appreciate all the research that's gone into it. And um, the presentation is a little different than a normal magic show because I'm actually teaching history of the era. I talk about who the big lords and ladies and the events and the literary things and the scientific accomplishments that all happened in the time period. And anyone who is a you know history fan immediately grabs onto it and they realize that this is really interesting that magic intertwines with politics and it intertwines with art and it intertwines with science. There's this overriding theme because in this time period of the, the 18th and 19th century, um, the magicians were some of the biggest celebrities and some of the big names. And it was often referred to there, there's still a reason why, you know, we have a lot of those terms today when people, you know, if, if a politician does a tricky move, you know, they, they say they pull a rabbit out of their hat. Or things like that. That's a magic reference. And it's because a lot of these early magicians were able to align themselves with some influential politicians. Or we did things that would often you know, play well in the, the media to go and how you describe a politician or a celebrity or something. So um, it, it, it's interesting to see how you can spark people's imaginations quickly. And then they realize, oh, yeah, you're right. There is a complete connection there. There is the reason why that all works and why that you know, went together. No. Do you feel like it's necessary for a performance for them to be able to engage other fields of, of interest as a magician? Like, you know, you said that you get into the political schemes of the time and the literary aspects and, and the other forms of art from the time period. Do you feel like that that's helpful to your performance or is it just something that you enjoy doing? Well, my audience doesn't have to have any background in it whatsoever because I present it all to them. So if they have no knowledge of 18th century, that's absolutely fine. They're going to walk away with a little knowledge after they see my show and hear my act. Um, but obviously there are some people who do and have a little background. And I think it, I would hope that it's appreciated by both because I think I'm a good storyteller, a uh, good presenter enough to be able to help give them that background which is probably why I get continually called back to do events. And, you know, that's one of the things that you learn, especially as a magician, it's probably the same way with other artists that um, a lot of our growth is repeat business. When you can get going back to the same, you know, gig, the same performance over and over and over, and you keep getting called back, you know, you're, you're a, you're doing something right. And, and B that spreads the word. So you get that gig back, then they tell the next person and they tell the next person. And all of a sudden you've got, you know, lots of performances lined up and, you know, you, you're able to build that client list and build that clientele. You know, as a as an artist, the hardest thing is is the marketing. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't want to market. I don't like to market. Um, you know, and and I admit that I'm not great at it. But uh, it's a necessary evil. You have to market. You've got to tell people you exist. And um, I have not been very successful at that. Uh, but <laughs> it's grown. You know, a lot of my growth is all word word of mouth. Um, you know, I perform for one steampunk show that there's attendance will go to that steampunk show. They tell other steampunk, you know, people, and then they fly me out to go do their steampunk show. And then those steampunkers tell the next. So I've built this little group of steampunkers who, uh, use, you know, love to see my magic. They love to see the history. And, uh, while it's not exactly their time period, but it's a fictitious time period. Anyway, you know, they're, they're doing, you know, Neo Victorian. 
But um, a lot of them will tell me that, you know, your character would have inspired my character. You inspired me to learn more about this, this little niche. And uh, it, it worked very well for, for that audience. So a lot of my growth has been that organic word of mouth, uh, you know, people telling each other things. And, you know, they're going to trust that better than me trying to sell them anyway. You know, if I try to market to them and try to convince them of what I am until their friend says, no, no, I saw this guy. You're going to really enjoy this. Cause this isn't like a normal magic show. That's what really makes the difference. I think to a lot of the, 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 the clientele that I end up performing for is it's, it is, it's very different than your traditional, you know, magic show. It's just not a, it's not me doing, I'm not just sitting there doing a whole bunch of card tricks, you know, for an hour. Uh, you know, it's, it's a full entertainment where, you know, the people really get a chance to feel like they're back in a time gone, you know, a time far away, right. <laughs> a back, uh, going back in time, I guess you'd say. Now you said that you don't feel very, or you're not very good at marketing and that you've managed to kind of build a network out of just being recommended from people to people. Are there other ways that you would recommend magicians market themselves like social media or business cards or those paid Facebook ads that they have now or anything like that? Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's some of that. I, I actually did early on um, begin doing some of that kind of marketing standard marketing, but the problem was right away, I would get calls to do, you know, shows that I'm not, you know, versed to do. They would, they would call and say, Oh, can you do a walk around magic gig? You know, can you do a restaurant magic? Well, you do a restaurant magic at, you know, our local, you know, diner. And um, no, I, I, I don't. In 18th century magic, I, I wouldn't. My character wouldn't do that. My character is a parlor magician. I would only be performing for the elite, for the royals. So I don't go table hopping from table to table doing sponge ball tricks. That's just what I don't do. And so, again, as I mentioned before, I would rather redirect them over to somebody who does. I think that's probably part of, probably my, probably a fail of me is that I do redirect a lot of business over to other magicians when people ask me those kind of questions. So, Again, that's probably not a good marketing ploy. I should probably keep them here for myself. But in the end, I want to make sure that the audience gets what they want out of it. I don't want them to be forced to have to watch the historical conjurer, myself, if they could watch somebody who does the balloon animals they actually want to watch. If that's what they're looking for. So that's whenever I get a call from somebody, um, that's what I try to, to deal with. And early on when I was running those ads, I would get a lot of those calls that were just not for me. They didn't want you know, my type of magic. They wanted something else. So I figured I'm just not going to run those ads anymore because it just wasn't worth it um, to do that. You know, the, really the, the best marketing for me is to do the research and find out who the historical groups are, who's running those historical groups and reach out to them. And the thing about it is, you know, something like a Jane Austen society, they may not have a magician ever. It would never even be on their radar. They would never do a, a Google search about, you know, a Jane Austen style magician because they just wouldn't think of that. So when I reach out to them and tell them that, hey, I've got a character that would be doing parlor magic in Regency homes and in Regency events, just like what characters from Jane Austen's novels would have done and seen, that's when they go, oh, you're right. You know, that's exactly what they would be doing. They would, they would be going to those kind of events and they would be seeing it. And, oh, you can come and do, you know, maybe you can come to our ball and do some magic at our ball. So that's where I have to really focus my marketing. I do the standard marketing business cards and postcards. And one of the things that uh, was advised to me a few years ago was to create merch 
for me, um, which I had to do for my character because that's another great way of marketing when someone's you know wearing your T-shirt or something from a band. I uh, wanted to stick with my character. I wanted to be very honest to who I was, and I did not want to do things like create stickers or T-shirts that said Historical Conjurer. <laughs> Instead, I created things that work with me. So, for example, I have a, a reproduction deck of 18th century playing cards that I sell with my logo on the outside of it. I have a uh, reproduction quen quill pen because I use quill pens during my show. So you have your own quill pen that you can take home with a historical conjurer's packaging on it. Um, and ink, of course, because you need the ink to dip the quill pen. In. So those are the types of things that, that I sell as my merchandise because it fits again with my character. And that's exactly what, you know, I want my audience to take away is that they've realized that they're in this. I would, you know, as great as it would be for them to go buy a plastic water bottle with my name and logo on it, that just wasn't, that wouldn't fit for my character. It wouldn't be what I am. And it would give the wrong impression, I think, in the whole marketing as well, because all of a sudden the people would think I'd be a, a regular modern magician or something. Then, you know, I guess maybe I'm a little snobby on that, that I'd rather that focus more on the character than getting the gigs and getting the, you know, the performances. Um, but that's, you know, I guess that's, that's me and my 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 weirdness as an artist and that's what i'd rather focus on is what my character does well i've heard a lot of stories especially whenever it comes to artists and performing artists any kind and it's that it seems like the more you focus on the money and the more you make everything that you do about just landing gigs and about the money honestly the less successful you'll end up being because once you do get them you have nothing to show for it right yeah like and then your your method of marketing, which is accept the gigs that make sense for you and your character and your performance, can can go really well if as long as it's reciprocated. Because then if if a balloon animal and card trick magician and and SpongeBob magician find someone who's like, oh, well, you should come perform for my group of CEOs here at this historical society where we're doing a reenactment of you know, 1800s Victorians hanging out. And, and then they would be like, well, no, that's not my thing. Well, let me point you to my boy, Dr. Schreiber. So does that ever happen like that for you? Yes, it does very much. And uh, they know a lot of the magicians in town know th that I, that is my niche. That's what I focus on. So if someone does say that, I, that's usually the call that I will get. I have to be, that's actually probably where I should be better at my marketing is making sure I'm talking to other magicians to make sure that they know that's what I do. So they're really very focused on it. You know, it's okay. Sometimes people get confused with, you know, Renaissance versus Regency. They don't understand that those are, you know, a few hundred years apart, but um, it's okay. I don't do Renaissance, you know, you know, Renaissance magic. I'll send them to another Renaissance person, but there is definitely, um, I think the smart magicians in town know that because they're trying to make the client happy. I mean, that's what the end is. You want to make the, the, the audience happy. And if you're going to be doing sponge balls and they're looking for something different, then you're going to, it's not, yes, you'll get the gig, you'll get the money. That's going to be a one-time gig. You're never going to get called back there ever again because that's not what they want. And, um, and luckily enough, there's enough magicians in town that think the same way that I do, that we do feed each other all the time. I, when anyone, anyone ever calls for a, a, a kid's birthday party, I've got a guy, uh, Kevin Witt, who I just send them to. Kevin is incredible with kids' birthday parties in town. Send them right over to, to Kevin. If it's a little older kid, I'll send them over to Bob Eaton. 
Um, and I always tell them, you know, Bob got my got me started too. So go to Bob. Um, so I've got this little network in the same way. Kevin has many times sent theater companies to me. So I end up working a lot with professional theater companies um, as a magic consultant. And so I'll teach their actors how to do magic for the stage while they're doing a, a show. And um, Kevin will send them my direction. If he, if there's somebody who's looking for a, a steampunk style magician and they want to do a steampunk show, he'll send it on my direction because he knows that's what, you know, DR Schreiber does. That's he, he focuses on that kind of Victorian and, and Regency era uh, magic, that old stuff. So, uh, yeah, no, there is some very good, uh, locally here, at least uh, the exchange of those kind of things. And again, I think the ultimate goal is to make sure that the audience appreciates magic more and that we do a good job of helping to raise the bar for everybody so that we all do a, a, a better, a better job in the end. So yes, no, it, it is reciprocal. And what ends up happening for, for me is because I am such a niche in the local market, I can charge a little bit more. I can raise my prices up so that I offset the amount of work that I'm doing. So it's more of a, a quality of work versus a quantity. You're going to get a high quality performance targeted for your market, for your audience versus, you know, me just pumping out as many gigs as I can get and just kind of, you know, doing as much magic as I possibly can. Um, so changes a little bit way, you know, the way you do your, your business plan in your, your mind and or written out is that you just got to offset that by having to raise the price a little bit. So I may not, you know, charge as much as a birthday party magician or a, a wedding magician uh, for one thing, but I'll charge more for a, a, a you know, conference. If I'm doing a conference or seminar or a cosplay event or something like that, um, I'll have to adjust that differently. So out of all the types of events you've done, like, have you ever actually gotten to perform in a castle for like real royalty before? I want to ask that. I actually did. Um, I performed for the Jane Austen Society of Kent over in the UK. And apparently, I didn't know who it was, but some lord was there. They introduced me to the lord. I, I honestly can't remember the name. But um, it was one of these lord something or others of something or other. And um, it happened to be in America. Yeah, exactly. I know. Should have probably known this, but I'm an American and I... I was actually, actually already was in awe anyway, so I would not have remembered it. I was just kind of like, wow, I can't believe it. Um, but yes, yeah, so I was in, and it was in a manor house. It was uh, in the, a country manor house that apparently Jane Austen had stayed in. So she, one of these, like Jane Austen had slept here things, and I got to perform in the main parlor there. Unfortunately, and I wish, I was the only one in costume. They were all just in regular streetwear. I'm streetwear. They were all in gorgeous, beautiful, you know, attire. But they weren't in period appropriate. I was like, I was wishing they all would have been in period costume. But you know, that's just me. What's actually was very interesting in in the UK for this Jane Austen Society. Um, that was actually one of the younger group of people there. Really wanted their people to be more in costume. They wanted to perform more in costume. I'm uh, sorry to do events in costume, and that's one of the reasons why they brought me in to show them that there is things you can do in Regency and that period costume to still. Uh, be entertaining and so that was part of their whole thought process is well, let's get this guy in here and have him perform for us uh, from you know an american doing a british you know performance over in the uk so um <laughs> that was the one time i did get to perform it wasn't a castle but it was a manor house so i is that close enough i guess that's close enough you know it's close as we can get for a a, um, a castle but yeah so it was that was actually very fun and uh, got to see some pictures 
But um, yeah, that that's my one claim to fame. I actually should go back. I have the information. I wrote it all down. I should go back and see who this the Lord was. The Lord actually it was the Lord and Lady. His lady was there as well. So it was the Lord and Lady oh. of the of the, the society. But it's funny is the the manor house now is no longer a manor house. It's now a golf club. So it's like a golf course. So um, it was you know now it was at the you know I don't I have to go back and look at it, but the the golf course of whatever. But it was at one time a manor house. No one lives there anymore, so now it's just the golfers use it for their clubhouse and all. But um, still, hey, still a beautiful place. It would have, you know, it's an amazing thing to look at and um, wonderful performance, fun to have there. I know when I was doing one of my tricks, I think I mentioned to you, I do a, a, a trick where I shoot a, a playing card out of the air, and they were worried that I was going to damage the home with my, you know, gun. Like, you can't fire a gun in the manor house. This is built in the 16th century. And I, oh, okay. It'll be fine. Don't worry. I did not damage anything. The manor house is fine. It's still standing. It was not me. I didn't do anything. So yeah, that would be kind of a drawback for for an indoor performance is if you left bullet holes everywhere that you tried to perform. Would not be invited back very frequently. That is for sure. <laughs> uh, but uh, I was actually going to ask you before we started recording, but I guess you just kind of answered that question. I was going to ask you if you actually fired like a live. Uh, round or what ball ball you said you use flintlock yeah round is what it would have been called okay yeah so um it's interesting some of my fans uh, so when i began doing this trick i was using um a fairly cheap reproduction of a kentucky uh rifle handgun which was not period appropriate um and my fans that I follow are very particular with me. And in the 15 years I've been doing this character have pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed me to be more historically accurate. So they won't let me get away with doing uh, things that would not be done in the period. And so a few of my fans have actually pushed me to actually use real powder guns and fire a real live weapon inside. And I won't. I will still stick only with a cap gun. I have a reproduction cap gun. It looks exactly like one. It's a reproduction of an 1812 pistol. Um, identical for for what it is. It's identical to, identical to a piece that's in a museum that they've reproduced as a cap gun version of it. And it still puts off a puff of smoke. It still looks like it. It uses a little percussion cap, makes a little puff of smoke. And it's barely loud. It's still loud enough. But uh, some of my fans really want me to use a black powder gun in the house. And I just don't think, you know, the smell of sulfur inside someone's home with the puff of, you know, those are big, uh, large amounts of smoke. I don't think a lot of people would want that in their manor house um, or in their Victorian mansion. So I just stick with a cap gun, which is plenty loud and still gives you a little tiny puff of smoke, uh, but not too bad. Although what I always mention in my performance is that imagine back in the 18th century, what it would have been like, because there would have been a real blast of smoke and it would have been very loud. Can you imagine what it would have been like for that audience to have the room now filled with sulfur smell and the low hanging cloud of, you know, of smoke from that, you know, gunfire going off. So, uh, you know, I give them the general idea, but I still keep safety in mind. I don't want to hurt anyone. I don't want an actual round going off. There is no way that I could ever fire a round that'll ever injure anyone um, out of my cap gun. But, and it's, it's, it's a really great cap gun. It's, it's 
all metal. It's actually made out of cast uh, a cast brass and then, you know, the nice wooden handle. So it, it looks like a real, actually it looks, it feels um, very much like a real gun. So I actually don't fire it in the act. I let the audience member fire it. They do all the trick. I don't do anything. I hand them the gun. They pick the card and I hand them the gun and they do the whole trick. So um, the, uh, it's probably even safer than that. I really don't hand them a live weapon <laughs> for everyone's safety <laughs> because I want them to make sure that they don't kill anyone during the, right. during the demonstration. And um, especially not me. And actually <laughs> I make that part of the joke. I always remind them, we're not aiming for the magician. You're aiming for the card. You just aim from here and don't point it at me. And um, so that's always fun, but no, no, I don't fire a real weapon. Although, yeah, some people would like me to. Yeah, that'd be one way to end a career. Right. Yes, exactly. That's why I do not need that going on. Although it was interesting. We're just trying to get over the UK, <laughs> carrying my my gun with me. You can't have guns there. So um, I had to go through, declare it, had to chain it up. They um, have a law that historic guns are allowed. So if it's before a certain time period, apparently you can get those into the country because they're not, you know, obviously, you know, semi-automatic rifle or something but um you know those those are allowed so but i still had to go through the whole jumping through hoops and everything to make sure it was legal and and had to bring it on the plane all of that kind of stuff that was a it was a bit of a struggle to get just the the cap gun overseas now as far as props go uh because you told me you, you don't really do box tricks and you don't really do animal tricks is is as far as props go, is the cap gun the main thing you use? And then you told me you use a uh, hand crank electrical device that gives off sparks or something like that, electricity? Yep. Electrostatic generator is what it's uh, generically called. Uh, you try to recreate what was used in the show. So um, my current act uses um, a vac. So one of the new things that was being created at the time were pneumatics, basically vacuum pumps. So I have a reproduction uh, early uh, 19th century vacuum pump that I use in my act. Uh, of course, the static electric generator I use is one of my props. Um, I use a few other just, you know, vessels and, and bases and other things that are, you know, very old fashioned looking and would have been used just kind of around like candles. You know, obviously I have lots of candles because back then the entire show would have been illuminated in candlelight and you would have had to have only candles there's, there's no spotlights or footlights or anything like that and and that's actually been fun over the the career is that i've occasionally been able to perform for groups in entire candlelight um you know they'll be in costume i'll be in costume we'll be in candlelight it'll be exactly how it would have been you know two centuries three centuries ago to be able to get this full immersive experience so um do a lot of stuff that way of course you know period appropriate cards um, those types of things is what I try to, to use for my act where it's, it's a little bit, um, and I'm actually right now in the, in the midst of building my own automaton. So we'll have an automaton soon in the act, uh, not there just yet. COVID kind of threw a wrench into that whole, whole plan, but, um, get, we get there working on that one. I have an, a, a great, um, artist creating that for me and, Hopefully that, hopefully that will come along quickly. I, I want to get that automaton in there because I know there definitely were automaton um, in the uh, automata, automaton, depending on how you pronounce it, in, in the performance. So that will be coming along very, very soon. But those are the types of things um, that I do. My act is, is relatively short. I only do about a 45 to 50 minute act uh, currently, which is about the length of what they would have done in the time period. 
And then um, I always open up my act at the end with a little question and answer period, Q&A from the audience. Because again, I, I do my act in a bit of a, I jump between first person and third person interpretation, which in the historic reenactors world, first person interpretation is when you become the character and you are playing that person. Um, for example, somebody who's like a Ben Franklin interpreter, they might play Ben Franklin. They answer all the questions as though they're Ben Franklin. They act entirely like it. That's first person. Third person is when you address in period costume, but you are addressing it uh, of the people of that period. So you're telling them back then they would have because you're in third person telling them about it. So I, in my character, jump back and forth between that a little bit. I kind of break some of those interpreter rules of, of how you play first versus third person just because it is for theatrical purposes. It works well to do that, to jump out of, I mean, it's almost me jumping out of character when I do that. Um, I have, you know, some little jokes that I'll throw in here and there. There's a point, you know, I've been doing this whole historic act and there's a point at which I have the audience member, you know, sign a piece of paper and, you know, through the whole thing, we've been using a quill pen, but I, at some point I pull out this ancient device that I call a Sharpie and, you know, hand them the modern Sharpie to do the trick with. And they always get to laugh because, you know, they're thinking I'm going to pull up something ancient and old. And, uh, of course, it's a Sharpie. <laughs> so I break character at that point and, you know, basically bring them, let them know that I know that I'm not actually living in the 18th century. I'm not that, you know, old fashioned. As much as I like the 18th century, I certainly would not want to live there today. I enjoy playing the part of it. But, um, you know, things like Sharpies are really good to write permanent pen on on something. So it doesn't change. And so actually, that's how I have them. It's back to the card trick. That's how I have them sign the card as I use a Sharpie because you can't have them. You can't use a quill pen on a card. It, the ink takes too long to dry. We'd be sitting there waiting for the ink to dry and the show would be over <laughs> by the time the ink dries. So, again, it's fun to break character for the moment. The audience always gets a kick out of it because they, they laugh. They they realize that it's all fun. We're here to enjoy. We're here to have a good time. It's it's a fun experience. You know, we're, we want to play. We all want to play together in the magic. And um, <laughs> that's what I want them to do is I want them to, to enjoy themselves, but still feel, you know, as though they've had a good time. And in the end, you know, they'll, they'll be educated. They'll know a little bit more about the period and as well as they'll be entertained and informed. So it's, it's a all around fun experience is the whole idea. You know, I don't want to, don't want to, force them into learning um, any of this history. But usually then they'll be like, hey, I, I learned some magic history I didn't know before. I learned some political history. I learned some science history. And, you know, the period that I do is so, um, in, it's right before that industrial revolution kicks into the Victorian. And it's kind of the platform of setting the scope for that. So there's a lot of really fascinating things that are happening in the scientific world. And in, you know, it's, it was really a period of revolution. You got to realize this is the same period. We just had the French Revolution. Well, actually, French Revolution kind of going on the same time, as well as the American Revolution. So there's revolutions happening, political revolutions happening. There's social revolutions happening. There's scientific revolutions happening. It was a big time of change. So it's perfect for magicians to step in, tell the story, and, you know, educate the audience a little bit about it. But, um, you know... I think it's fun. I, that's what I hear. I hear from the audiences that I think it's a fun time to, to be in. Now, you seem like, you know, you're one of the, one of the performers who's like, yes, this is all 
really just illusions. It's just tricks. It's just a performance. Have you ever worked with or been around any magicians who, who can, and I know that these are getting rarer and rarer, but have you ever worked around any magicians who either try to convince others or have convinced themselves that they are actually magical? Um, in my community, no, everyone, we know we do this for entertainment. That's what we do. Um, there's a few actually of us who are on the opposite side who are more of the, the skeptics and they go out and expose people who are trying to use the trickeries. Nowadays, um, the area, there's kind of a mentalism area. If you've ever heard the term mentalism is a kind of a subset of magic where people say they can perform these demonstrations using their mind, their mental powers. And that's a real gray area um, with a lot of magicians. My area, my era, we didn't really do that. And I always tell, I mean, I, I know we're talking about it again as in the past, but the people of the period when I performed, they would not have thought of my magic as being a power that comes from me because my conjurers would have really equated the power more likely to science. We would have said, this is a scientific demonstration. Now let's try a scientific experiment. They wouldn't have used the word science because science wasn't the same term. They would have used natural philosophy or magnet, ma magnetology or, you know, electricity. Those are, they would use exact terms instead of science. But really, it was discovery of science. They were not doing science. It was absolute pseudoscience. It was not real. But to the audience, that's what they thought back then. So nowadays, yeah, you know, I think our modern audiences are much smarter. It's harder to pull a con on a modern audience. Um, on certain things of tricks because we know nowadays the other you know things that do do happen is that there are a lot more ways to trick audiences doing like mental kind of things mind types of things versus physical dexterity things i think our our i don't know i could be wrong i mean you could disagree with me on it but i think our modern audience we know dexterity tricks we know how to do those things but the stuff that makes you think like, how did he read, you know, how did he read my mind? And, you know, how did he know what I was going to say? Um, those are really hard for our modern audiences to still figure out, even with the existence of the Internet and Google. And, um, you know, the fact that you can just type into a computer basically any sentence and get an answer instantly. People are still shocked when a magician can, you know, come up with an answer <laughs> instantly. And they don't realize, oh, yeah, I can do that with my. Amazon, you know, device at home. Alexa will tell me in a moment, you know, what this is. When the magician can do that as well, we forget that we have that modern version. Of mm -hmm. it. So I see that sometimes. Um, and I think that's really easy. That's how some of these little uh, cons and cults and scams get taken. You know, people are able to figure this stuff out quickly and the audience doesn't always catch up through that they don't realize that that's what these people are doing they're pulling cons and um as a magician you know that's one of the things that uh we are skeptics as magicians we know how tricks are done so we're often watching for those kind of things so um people who do that probably wouldn't hang out with me <laughs> they wouldn't want to be around me um i am not that that uh you know that that i don't want to say uh susceptible i am susceptible everyone's susceptible to the cons you got to be careful about that but i guess i'm a little more of a skeptic and uh I, I i love to find out how these things are done i'm researching it figuring it all the time you know we figure out how the the cons are done and how the tricks are done so that we can 
do it as a magic demonstration, as a entertainment, but not actually to hurt people and take people, you know, take money. Harry Houdini is a great example. You know, Harry Houdini during his time period, there was a lot of mediums uh, going around, you know, people who uh, believed in psychic powers, wasn't called psychic powers, it was called spiritualism, and it was called mediums back then. And um, Houdini was constantly chasing them down. He was trying to expose as many of these bad mediums as they were because they were stealing millions of dollars from people, you know, probably thousands at the time period, but nowadays would be equating to millions because they would be, you know, telling them, you need to give me this money so I can contact your great uncle or your great aunt or whatever. And they would be kind of playing these, you know, cons on them at the time. And Houdini, um, he actually, his story behind it is Houdini wanted to contact his mother. His whole goal was his mother died when he was on tour in Europe and he was never able to say goodbye to her here in the United States. And so he went to a medium to try to connect him with his mother and the medium claimed that she could do it, but, or, you know, she couldn't do it. And, um, Houdini knew all the tricks that she was doing. He, he, he did them on stage, uh, you know, cold reading and hot readings and other things like that. So Houdini kind of made it his mission to expose all of these medians. Now he only went after what he called the medians who were taking advantage of people, basically medians who were tricking people and then charging them for it or making them pay them exorbitant fees to be their medium. And when they were just doing tricks. So that was really his goal. He didn't want to expose everyone because there was a number of mediums who were out there just doing it for free and doing it out of love. And people wanted to, you know, uh, you know, wanted to sit down for a, a spiritualist, you know, you know, psychic event or actually what they would call a seance. They would want to sit down for a seance and um, Houdini would do a seance with them. And as long as they weren't trying to con people, he was okay with it. He didn't bother those ones, but it was the ones who were being, you know, deceitful and conning people. And um, that's who he really went after. So that's the history of magic. And even within the society of American magicians, they still have a, a skeptics group that will go and investigate people who are claiming powers, uh, things like that. And, we don't always catch them. Magicians aren't, you know, perfect. We kind of get conned too occasionally. But in most cases, when you get the team together, they can figure it out pretty well, you know, what the trick is that's going on and how it's being done and um, hopefully save people from having the embarrassment of, of being conned into something that they, they didn't expect. It's not what, that's not what my magic is about. And that's not what modern magic wants to be about. We don't want to be about tricking people in that way. And actually, that's one of the reasons why when I teach magic to kids and to adults, I try to avoid using the term magic trick. Um, I much prefer the, the term magic effect because uh, most people don't want to be tricked. And that's not our goal. We don't want to trick people um, when we're doing performing. We want to entertain them. That's our goal as magicians is to entertain. And we do that by, you know, showing them illusions and, you know, demonstrations of, of, you know, showmanship and other things like that so uh that's what i that's my own personal goal as i always try to avoid the word trick there's nothing wrong with it it's still an easy way to define it but i just know that most people don't want to be tricked so why would i want to show them a trick if they don't want to be tricked <laughs> i'd rather do something they'd rather enjoy right yeah right so uh as someone who's as far along and experienced as you are and someone who's already mentoring young people uh, what would be one piece of advice you would give to anyone who's listening right now that's considering maybe setting out into the fe field of entertainment 
magical effects. <laughs> uh, what what would you tell anyone who's trying to start down that path in today's world? My um, my take on it, and I, I tell this to a lot of my students, old and young, because I have adult you know, magicians I work with as well, and uh, new magicians, um, is I, I once you start to learn all of the moves and the methods of how to do effects, th there's actually not a whole, I mean, there are a lot of them, but there's not a ton of them. You can start to think on your own, but what I always encourage them to do is try to come up with your own character, know who you are as a magician, which is hard to do. I mean, I told you, it took me, you know, 20 years probably to figure out who I really wanted to be as a magician. And um, it's very difficult to do that. And a lot of magicians will tell you, even magicians that are performing right now will tell you, I'm not a character, I'm just me. And um, unless they as an individual can actually produce miracles and actually do things, they are absolutely being a character. Whether that is a person that looks a lot like them in the mirror and they don't realize that they're doing something you know, different. But usually when I watch those perform magicians perform, I can tell them who their character, who they are as a character. And they usually didn't realize it. And, oh, you're right. I am a bit sarcastic on stage. Or, oh, yeah, you're right. I am kind of that goofy guy who things always go wrong to. And, or I'm, you know, whatever it ends up being, they don't realize that as who their character is. So I always advise my performers to think about who their character is. Do things like take acting classes. Because, of course, as a magician, we have to act. That's our job on stage. Mm -hmm. um, there's a famous quote from a magician by the name of Jean-Eugene Robert Houdin, who happens to be the namesake for Harry Houdini, who, who said famously that a magician is actually an actor playing the part of a magician. <laughs> because if you really think about it, we can't do those actual miracles on stage. We're just acting like we can. So you have to learn how to act as a magician. You have to learn to have that theatricality of magic. It's not just about moving the cards or moving the coins or duplicating the, you know, the, whatever it is. Um, it's more about the, the theatricality of it being a showman, um, you know, being big, luckily enough for people who are starting out now because of the internet, because of YouTube, um, there are a lot of magic that you can learn online very easily. Ever since the 2020, because of the COVID, uh, restrictions. I moved all of my magic instruction online and started teaching over Zoom with students all around the globe. I've got students, Australia, the UK, Germany, France, um, New York, actually a couple in Canada too. I've got them all over the, the globe. And because of Zoom, we can teach them, which, you know, again, 10, 15 years ago didn't even exist. So when you were learning magic, when I was younger, you had to go to books then they started doing VHS tapes. You could occasionally get a VHS tape, and then it went to DVD. Nowadays, it's all at their fingertips. You can literally connect to magicians around the world through Zoom and through other connections or um, watch them on YouTube and start getting that instruction of how to do the trick through YouTube. You can learn that. But what it doesn't teach you is how to be a showman, how to be an entertainer, how to be an actor, how to know your character, um, how to get a script that works for you. Those are the kinds of things that take a little bit of extra practice and a little bit of extra time. So um, those are the things that you need to work on next. That's the next step. I really actually have a lot of hope for the next generation of magicians because of all of these things like YouTube and, and um, online learning. 
they've got the ability to learn things that magicians long ago didn't uh, or would take them forever to learn because, you know, realizing that some of the early magic was taught through correspondence or through books. And it's often very, very difficult to describe how to move something within your hands in a book, especially with words. And then they started doing pictures after that. It's still difficult to tell how to position something, um, you know, without actually seeing it. But when you can watch it in a video or you have a magician help you, you know, through a class, it's so much easier. You realize, oh, okay, I need to hold the card this way. I was having it. I didn't realize it was the third finger down, not the fourth or whatever it ends up being. Um, it's, the moves are so much easier to learn through video and through in-person and through, you know, uh, Zoom or whatever, um, or Skype or whatever your connection is. But they're lucky to have that. It didn't exist before. So I'm looking forward to seeing what these, you know, people who are now learning magic at a younger age, learning some really hard moves at a really younger age. I want to see what they do with the next part. I want to see how they do their theatricality. I want to see what they do with their entertainment value, with their characters, with their costumes, with their whole apparatus, everything that they do. I want to see where they go. I'm challenging them to go beyond what they've already learned. And I always encourage my students to do the same thing. I'm going to teach you a method as an as a, a instructor, but I want them to then take it to make it their own. Don't just do what I teach you. Take what I teach you and then make it your own. Make it into your own character. Uh, you know, take it and and do whatever it is that you do with it um, to make it amazing. And those those students that I can see who go far are the ones who immediately start thinking that way. You know, I'll I'll show them a little move and then they're off running you know a thousand miles an hour to make this incredible, great, um, you know, imaginative demonstration of magic with the one move that I taught them. So. That's the great, when you can start seeing people, or better yet, they apply that same thing and I teach them how to, you know, make a coin vanish. And then all of a sudden they're thinking, oh, I could also make an Oreo cookie vanish <laughs> using that same idea. Oh, you know what? I could do it with, uh, with a vanilla wafer cookie. I'll make it change into an Oreo cookie. Or, and it's all because I taught them a coin trick. They're now putting it into something that they love. You know, they, the person loves Oreo cookies or whatever. They now have a whole Oreo cookie act <laughs> that they've created from learning a coin trick or something like that. So those are the types of things that are very creative and very fun. And, and I'm hoping for the future of magic to be a lot more about that type of, of uh, discovery and innovation. And um, you're seeing it. I, the, a lot of the magicians that I see, like the, 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 some of the folks you see on America's Got Talent, um, that's what you're starting to do. They're starting to, to take different little pieces and put them together to make a, a, a different act than they were trained. And that's not the way they were taught to do it, but they're making it more entertaining and they're making it more about their own character um, that way. And when I say character, I don't mean someone who dresses in costume like I do and all that. I mean, you're more your, your persona of who you are, who your personality is on stage. Uh, and, you know, any if you talk to comedians or, or actors, they always ask the motivation of their characters they're playing. Or the actors will, the, the comedians will want to know who they are as a comedian, you know, what they do as a comedian. And um, same thing. They need to just know their character. They need to know their persona. They need to know who their stage presence is. And I, and I hate to say it. I don't want to make fun of magicians, but we will often hear magicians say, I'm me. It's me on stage. It's just, you know, me. And that's when I argue with them. Like, no, it's, it's, Yes, you are on stage, 
but that's not who the character is on stage. It's something different than you because you're not on stage in your boxer shorts, you know, doing the dishes. <laughs> that's not you. You know, that's you at home. That's you really at home. This is you on stage. And that's a different person than you at home. So that's, that, uh, that's, it's hard to understand, but especially when you start taking theater classes, that's what they teach in theater classes is, you know, knowing who your character is, knowing your motivation as a character. And that's really what they can play off. That's one of the, I love working with actors, professional actors. When I go to theater companies, mm -hmm. I really love working with them because they know that character. They know that motivation immediately. They are right on top of that. And, and um, that really helps as a magician. I can just teach them the move, you know, whatever it ends up being. And then they build on the character and then they know the motivation for why they're doing this. And, you know, or whatever, you know, if I'm teaching them to make a coin vanish, like, well, here's the motivation for the coin vanishing. And now I'm understanding where that coin is actually vanishing to. Now that coin is going into another dimension. So I have to think of that dimension as being here in this plane. And they've gone way off into the deep end of the theory of this whole magic. Um, but it sells it to the audience. Now, all of a sudden, the audience, because it's just in this actor's mind, and they're just emoting it and acting this way, the audience is captivated they're like you're absolutely right you're not just doing a magic trick you have created and opened a portal into a whole other universe of why this coin has now <laughs> ceased to be in existence and so um you know you see these actors who really get into it and it's amazing and i think wow that's that you're you you've got it i wish they could pass that along to magicians because that's sometimes what we're missing in magicians is that we just say I, I, it bugs me when I hear magicians do this, but their, their introduction to their trick is watch this. Hmm. Like, that's not really a setup. You didn't do anything. You didn't tell me there's no background. There's no story. It's a watch this. Um, you know, sometimes it works. Sometimes it's a very good effective way, but sometimes it's just kind of a lazy way of introducing an effect. But, uh, you know, again, I'm probably getting a lot of magicians now mad at me because I'm <laughs> criticizing them. But that's my own philosophy. And that's, you know, that's kind of what I was. That's how I was taught. And, you know, so there you go. I appreciate it. That's really insightful. So just to boil that down, essentially what you're saying is, is, is if you want to be successful as a magician, you have to do more than just tricks. You have to present yourself as an entertainer and actually have a personality. I even think entertainers fine, but yeah, I mean, I, I think entertainers can have personality just as an entertainer. Um, yeah, that's actually a personality, but yes, you're right. I think you need to be, um, you don't necessarily have to be your, uh, your, your own per It doesn't have to be your personality. I mean, you don't have to be yourself. There's, there's, I've seen many magicians. I, we were talking about uh, uh, Penn and Teller are a great example. Teller is not a mute person. He doesn't, you know, he does actually talk. His character is mute. His right. character doesn't talk. Um, and that's just his persona on stage. Again, he is an extreme character. But, and same with Penn. You know, Penn is, 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 is his showmanship. It's not the way he is when he's ordering at a restaurant. He does, he's, that's, not his, that's not him. It's him on stage. But at home, he's not that same way. That's when he has it turned on. And um, that's what I think it's always important for, for actors and for magicians to, to look at that way. It's not just about the trick. And that's the challenge for magicians. We sometimes think it's just about the trick. Show me the trick, teach me the trick, practice the trick. Um, I think there's a lot more to it than just the trick. That's just, that's me. I, I could be wrong. There's probably a lot of magicians who completely disagree with me and they, they really focus on the trick. But I think uh, the problem with that is, especially in this internet age, 
as soon as the audience figures out what the trick is and they figure out how to do the trick, then your whole act's gone because they know what you mm. did and they, they know how you did it. And then all of a sudden you got nothing to go back on. Unless of course, as you said, you've got a personality and you're showing your personality, your entertainment. And in that case, I, even though I, I go to magic shows, I still do go to magic shows. I go to magic shows of the entertainers that I like because they're entertaining, not because they do great tricks. Of course, it happens to be a lot of the guys who do and, and women who do great tricks are also entertaining. You know, it can be both. You know, it's not a not mutually exclusive. Right. But what I'm looking for is something to be, you know, entertained. I want to spend time being actually entertained. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be a, a great trick, but it has to be a really great presentation. It has to be really fun to watch and enjoyable and, um, you know, laugh along, cry along, give emotion, whatever it is. Um, but I think that's important personally, again, I think that's important for me to be entertained and, and especially nowadays with our modern audiences that are so easily distracted and have such short attention spans, you really need to focus on doing, uh, you know, entertainment that will captivate, bring them in and really want them to know more about the entertainment. You can't just pull out a deck of cards, have them pick a card, and the card, you know, tell them what the card is. I, you can. I mean, I've done it. <laughs> All magicians have done it every once in a while. But it's not a full-on act. It's not the full-on trick. It's, it, you got you to gotta create that connection with your audience that will help bring it to that next level. And that's, that is a challenge. Everyone has to have their own way of doing it, which is also the thing that I encourage my students. But when you... When you were asking of what I would give for a piece of advice, that would be my piece of advice is focus on, on learning more than just the trick, you know, learn about the personality, learn about the character. I'm a big proponent of learning about the history. I think you should learn about the history of magic too, because it's very fascinating and it certainly helps teach the future generation what they can do differently right. um, to not make the same mistakes that previous generations have made or to learn from them and, and actually do what they did well. So but that's just me. That's because I like history. But um, definitely, I think the magicians, you know, the, the kids who are, are learning, learn the tricks. Do everything you can to learn them on YouTube and all that stuff. But then don't stop there. Keep going. Learn the next part, which is the entertainment and the showmanship and everything else that goes along with that whole personality and the whole thing to, to make up a package that, that's entertaining. It's fun. And um, hopefully that in the end will keep them going to have fun. That the magician, because you know, as a performer, we need to have fun too. We need to have a good time, and you know, I love performing for audiences that have that enjoy it just as much as I do. And that's always that's so so good for them to give back. Well, yeah, um, but hey, this has been absolutely amazing. Uh, I feel like I've actually learned a lot talking to you today. Uh, you know, because I, I, I've always been a fan of magic myself. I've always uh, I remember the first time. I watched a magician perform. It was in like elementary school and he only did like a few simple card tricks and then the making the sponge ball disappear and it was just really basic stuff. But I was always like, there's something to this. And so getting to talk to you, understand the work that goes into it and the background that a lot of people have has been really awesome. But, uh, that we're at about what our time should be. Is there a social media you want people to follow? Uh, a website people can go to or anything to, to learn more about you or get in touch with you about your services or anything like that that you'd want to share real quick before we wrap up? Sure, absolutely. So where can people find you at? So on 
uh, Facebook as The Historical Conjurer. And uh, my website is... Oh, yeah, then my website, you can go to my website. That's probably the easiest way to find me. Uh, www.historicalconjurer.com. And Conjurer, you can either spell it with an O-R at the end or an E-R. I have them both. <laughs> I spell it with E-R. <laughs> but either one's correct. So historicalconjurer.com. And, uh, of course, on Facebook, I'm a Professor D. Actually, I'm just D.R. Schreiber on Facebook. You can look me up there. I've got, you know, I'm doing virtual classes still uh, after this whole COVID thing. People still wanted me to keep doing virtual classes. So I'm always available virtually. Travel all the time. I'm always on the road. So I'm happy to go anywhere, perform anywhere. Um, I know a lot, of, a lot of conferences aren't back up and running yet. So I haven't been able to do a lot of in-person events yet. But as things reopen, hopefully to get back in person. So I'm always willing to, to go places. I'd love to go and meet new people and travel and um, you know, do shows at different locations. Although I'm, I'm technically based in the United States, but I can, you know, go all over the world, all over the globe, love, love performing everywhere. So get in touch with me, you know, let me know. And if you have questions about magic history, I'm a magic history nerd. That's what I love, which is a very weird niche within the magic world. Cause there's not a lot of magic historians. There's a lot of magicians, but being a magic history nerd and a big fan of it makes you kind of unique. Cause a lot of, uh, a lot of magicians don't, follow magic history they don't even care when i start talking about 18th century magicians and start throwing out names the Compte and panetti and all the likes they're like i don't know what you're talking about you're you're talking nerd stuff now so <laughs> <laughs> always happy to talk history and how it all intertwines but um, as well as i do a lot of i do a lot of lectures about magic history to what we call lay audiences to regular people audiences because um a lot of them don't know that history They've never learned that whole side of, of, of history. We, we, uh, we think of the entertainers as being entertaining, and then we don't think of their background in history. So it's always fun, I think, for the you know, regular people to learn this whole background. And in most cases, magicians from long ago, they were characters. They were so funny. And the things that they did, there's some amazing stories of yeah. all these old-timey guys uh, and, and women. They're just There's a reason why they're characters, because they are. They're just funny people and there's some great tales to, to tell about you know their adventures and things that they did and didn't do and all that kind of stuff yeah definitely people should should learn more about the names and the people that you know have come together and made the culture that you now represent part of but it's been really awesome talking with you like i said i feel like i learned a lot it's been a great episode great conversation uh thank you very much for your time and thanks for being on the show thank you great to talk to you all right, you have a great night.